Situated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we are back after our two-week break. Yeah. Did you all miss us? I bet that you did. How did you even survive? (laughs) Is it not been like... Oh no, I was going to say it's not been three weeks. So I think it has only been two weeks since we've not seen each other. I think maybe it has. It's just that time time goes so slowly when we're apart. (laughs) (laughs) But that's because you were on holiday. Yes, I was. How was was. it? How did you get on? It was really good. We went to, it was just outside Fort William. So in the Highlands, which is like my favourite place ever. Yeah, it's really good. It's like, we didn't do a lot of stuff. We were, you know, kind of walking and... We went up some of the Nevis range in a gondola, which was a wee bit scary, but it was fine. Face your fears. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was really good. It rained a lot. It's <laughs> um, Scotland, that's what happened. We had one day of, like, really hot sun, but it was good. We still had, like, a wee beach day. And, oh, that's cute. Yeah, went Did you for... see the Harry Potter viaduct thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did. So we... We went and saw it one day, like saw the train going over it, but we were on the train one day as well. Ooh, that's um, exciting. So yeah, that was one of the very rainy days, so the views weren't amazing. <laughs> still so cool to be on the Harry Potter. Yeah, it was though. still it was still really cool. Although we walked past the first class trolleys after we got off, uh-huh. and they had like you know like lampshades and glasses of champagne and all this, and that that was not our experience. Um, <laughs> but it was still good. We got to see lots of Harry Potter stuff because obviously they filmed lots yeah. of Harry Potter there as well. We saw the little island that Dumbledore's grave is on. Like oh, you can see it going past on the train. That's cool. So that was cool. I did not know that. Yeah. There you go. And oh. what have you been doing with your two weeks? <laughs> with my two weeks I've been let's let's see, can I mix it up? No. I've been working. I've been editing my dissertation. Mm-hmm. I also went to the beach. It was gloomy. <laughs> yep. Um <laughs> I learned a new song on my guitar from folklore. It was fun. Um, That was the most respite that I had and it was for about three hours. But yeah, no, it's been good. It's been a good few weeks. I'm almost finished uni. Yay. (laughs) So I think actually by the time that the episode after this comes out, I'll be done. So this is my last episode as a student. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Exciting. (laughs) So anyway, let's dive right in let's go for it what are you infatuated with this week emily i am infatuated with the southern book club's guide to slaying vampires by grady hendrix i don't know where to start (laughs) reacting to that for anyone who hasn't seen the cover there's two very sexual looking apricots peaches yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm guessing peaches. Peaches, and there is blood coming from one of the peaches. Just the whole title is a is a vibe. Mm-hmm. And Grady Hendrix is an excellent name. It is an excellent name. So also, first impressions are um, good. Anyone who knows me knows I'll really enjoy this. It's a floppy book. Oh yeah, <laughs> like do, do it in the do it in the mic. Listen to that, guys. Flubbity 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 flub. <laughs> So yeah, this book, oh man, we're already like losing it and we've only been recording like two minutes. Okay, yeah, so this book came out in April this year, 2020. It's a horror book set in Southern America, as in like the South of America, not mm-hmm. Southern America. Yeah. And it's all about housewives and vampires. <laughs> Love it. Like dark, desperate housewives. Basically, yeah. 
And before I even like describe the plot, I thought I'd just read out the author's note from the start of the text because it does a good job of saying what it's about and also tells you why you chose to write it in the first place, which I think is quite interesting. A few years ago, I wrote a book called My Best Friend's Exorcism about two teenage girls in Charleston, South Carolina in 1988 at the height of the satanic panic. They become convinced that one of them is possessed by Satan and consequently things go poorly. That novel was written from a teenage point of view, and so the parents seemed awful because that's how parents seem when you're a teenager. But there's another version of that story, told from the parents' point of view, about how helpless you feel when your kid is in danger. I wanted to write a story about those parents, and so the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires was born. It's not a sequel to My Best Friend's Exorcism, but it takes place in the same neighbourhood a few years later where I grew up. When I was a kid, I didn't take my mum seriously. She was a housewife who was in a book club and she and her friends were always running errands and driving carpool and forcing us to follow rules that didn't make sense. They just seemed like a bunch of lightweights. Today I realise how many things they were dealing with that I was totally unaware of. They took the hits so we could skate by obliviously because that's the deal. As a parent, you endure pain so your children don't have to. This is also a book about vampires. They're that iconic American archetype of the rambling man wearing denim, wandering from town to town with no past and no ties. Think Jack Kerouac, think Shane, think Woody Guthrie, think Ted Bundy. Because vampires are the original serial killers, stripped of everything that makes us human. They have no friends, no family, no roots, no children. All they have is hunger. They eat and eat, but they're never full. With this book, I wanted to pit a man freed from all responsibilities but his appetites against women whose lives are shaped by their endless responsibilities. I wanted to pit Dracula against my mum. As you'll see, it's not a fair fight. Oh my god! <laughs> First of all, that's like a really excellent piece of reflective writing. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like, that so emotionally intelligent, but also I'm hooked. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think it's like, I don't know, it just it sets the tone well for the book, which I feel like I say a lot when I talk about like epigraphs and author's notes and stuff, but it sets the tone so well. And I think the fact that the book's all about mothers, it gives it a lot of heart, but there's still these really like gruesome scenes and scary scenes and then that humour that's kind of like mm. running through it as well. Yeah, because there's that whole like, like mothers never are near the gruesome scary things mm. in classic american literature but then obviously you have to flip it because like motherhood is gruesome mm-hmm. becoming a mother is gruesome and scary and yep. bloody and horrible so yeah i'm already <laughs> i'm down <laughs> okay and so to give a wee bit more context this book club is not just any book club they are obsessed with true crime and horror novels that are based on true crime so the kind of plot of this book is that this mysterious stranger James Harris moves to the area and he's been like really charming but also kind of sketchy mm-hmm. so Patricia our protagonist starts to think that he's like Ted Bundy basically like that kind of type yeah however she comes to realize that he's not like Ted Bundy he's a vampire <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> like like all the people, like the podcasts that you listen to all the time yeah. that like are obsessed with serial killers and like imagine them like being like, I've solved it. Yeah. I know what he's about. And yeah. Like, nope. And it's just a total opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's actually a really interesting kind of vampire as well. So 
he follows some traditional rules like he has to be invited into someone's house and he doesn't burn in the sun but he gets like sick in the sun so Mm. that's kind of like traditional however it's more like james's body it's like a host for this blood-sucking creature Okay. So I've seen this before in a Guillermo del Toro TV show called The Strain, which I don't know if you've seen. No. But it's like the creature sort of lives inside them, but then comes up through the throat to like suck blood from oh. people. And it's it's that kind of vibe that is in this book. It's like a parasite vampire. Yeah, basically. Because like a lot of, I think a lot of fiction treats it, so I know like Cassandra Clare's does, it's it's like a, like a disease. Mm. So I think it's kind of playing on that. Yeah, like, like, disease, like, like a parasite. Like yeah kind of so yeah it's really interesting kind of vampire that he is i think it's like more disgusting Mm. like it's grosser (laughs) to read because it's worse to think that he's doing something horrible involuntarily as well yeah yeah do you know what i mean that is like yeah you're true but yeah so to step away from the vampires (laughs) and focus back on the book club i thought i would read this little quote from near the start of the book and Patricia's reflecting on the friends that she's made and the lessons that they learn, like, while being in the book club. Patricia realised that for four years, these were the women she'd seen every month. She talked to them about her marriage and her children and gotten frustrated with them and argued with them and seen all of them cry at some point. And somewhere along the line, among all the slaughtered coeds and shocking small-town secrets and missing children in true accounts of the cases that changed America forever, she learned two things. They were all in this together, and if their husbands ever took out a life insurance policy on them, they were in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so sassy. It's such a good quote, because I just think, yeah, it reminds you of the book that you're reading, mm-hmm. and as well, like, all the chapter titles are titles of true crime books and stuff, ah, so, like, okay. you're, you know what genre you're in, but then it has that humour at the end that oh. just, like, gets you. It's so funny. Oh, nice. I like that. <laughs> and it is, it's very, like, suburbia tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. And I'll kind of stay on that subject of humour. So, most of the humour is about housewives and suburban life and those little quirks that we, like, associate with that, so... For example, like not calling before 9am because that mm. scene has been like too keen mm-hmm. that you wouldn't call after 10pm because that's like rude. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the names are ridiculous, which I think like we often associate with Americans. So there's blue, horse, pony, slick, K. Oh God. <laughs> it's like the names are ridiculous. And as well, Patricia often mentally notes when she's got an errand to run that just like pops in suddenly. So. Okay. There'll be like a whole paragraph about one thing and it ends with her being like, oh, I need to pick up the dry cleaning. <laughs> you know, just like poking fun at that fact that like a mother's job is never over. Yeah. And it also just like reflects thought processes quite accurately, which mm-hmm. is a detail you don't really need to add, but it's just quite... Quite fun. Quite fun. Yeah, great detail. But on the flip side, although there is humour about the housewives, there is a respect shown for them, which mm-hmm. I think shows you that you can poke fun at the idea of something without like patronizing it yeah and you can poke fun at an idea without poking fun at the actual people yes yeah exactly like if it's conscious that it's using a stereotype yeah yeah so like the epigraph of this book is actually a definition of housewife from the oxford english dictionary in 1971 right which defines a housewife as a light worthless woman or girl oh (laughs) oh well yeah so I think, like, Hendrix, 
like he does cleverly poke fun at the light things Mm. but he does give his respect to the women who obviously represent his own mother yeah and i think he uses that word worthless and shows how women can feel that way when being a housewife and how they are not Mm. (laughs) and i think the most obvious example of them being worthless in the book is when the book club do decide to do something about james harris all of their husbands just refuse to listen to them. They like condescend to them, manipulate them all to basically like turn on each other. Like it's like they're fearful of their wives having autonomy or like passion or you know, even though it's passion for a cause. Yeah. <laughs> not wanting them to kind of step out of line and stuff. Oh man, see like that is so and I love that because that's so much more chilling than the idea of a yeah, vampire. Exactly, like so Obviously, the vampire parts of this book are really scary. He's like, he's generally has made him really creepy. But the bits that annoy you more mm. and that make you more tense are the ones between the wives and their husbands. Oh. Which is ugh, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's this like strange tone of the text where it's like humor, horror, and then this total frustration that they're not being taken seriously. Yeah. But I think he does it really well. I think he balances it all really well. It's quite brave as well for, like, a male author mm-hmm. to, like, yeah. take that. Obviously, they're in the most privileged position to take on any issues that they want. And that but... will be coming up next, but again, I think he's done it well. But yeah. But I think that it's quite, like, fair play to him for being like, you know what, I love my mum, and here's why she's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So the kind of last like big thing that I want to mention today is the literary influences on the text. So I think it's probably the longest quote I've got and it's from the scene where Patricia finally works out that James is a vampire. Okay. And I think with this one it's just easier if I read it out first and then we can talk about it cool. after. Things were changing too fast and James Harris was at the centre of it. And something he'd said ate at her. She got up and went downstairs. Patty, Carter called behind her, don't storm off. I'm not storming, she called over her shoulder, but really didn't care if he heard her or not. She found her copy of Dracula in the bookcase in the den. They'd read it for a book club in October, two years ago. She flipped through the pages until the phrase she was looking for jumped out at her. He may not enter anywhere at the first, says Van Helsing in his Dutch-tainted English, unless there be some of the household who bid him to come though afterwards he can come as he please. She had invited him inside her house months ago. She thought about Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, again, and she thought about that thing in his mouth, and the next day after church she drove to the common shopping centre and went into the book bag. She checked to make sure no one she knew was there before she walked over to the register. Excuse me, she said, could you tell me where your horror books are? Behind sci-fi and fantasy the kids grunted without looking up. Thank you, Patricia said. She picked books by their covers, one after the other, and began piling them up by the cash register. When she was ready to pay, the clerk rang them up, one cover of a hunky, smooth-shaven young man with spiked hair after another. Vampire Beat, Some of Your Blood, The Delicate Dependency, Salem's Lot, Vampire Junction, Live Girls, Night Blood, No Blood Spilled, The Vampire's Apprentice, Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, Vampire Tapestry, The Hotel Transylvania. If it had fangs, sharp teeth or bloody lips on the cover, Patricia bought it. Her final total, $149.96. You must be really into vampires, the clerk said. Will you take a check, she asked. She hid the books in the back of her closet 
and as she read them one by one behind her closed bedroom door, she realised that she couldn't do this alone. She needed help. Oh, man. <laughs> I have two initial responses to yes. the very beginning of that quote. One, something he said ate at her. Excellent. Yep, yep. Two, why is it the only women storm? <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> why can't we just be walking? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I love this because it's right in the middle of the book and I think it like gears you up for the action that you mm. can tell is about to happen. Oh, yeah. It also does a really good job at nodding to the genre that it's in. So there's plenty of vampire <laughs> recommendations there if you're looking for a bit, guys. But what I wanted to focus on with this quote is a reference to Dracula. And I think it's a very clever choice that Hendrix has made to make that book the one that she works it out from. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's not because it's like the biggest vampire book, but actually because of like what she mentions herself. Dracula makes her realise that she can only defeat a vampire with a team. Yeah. So like the beauty of Bram Stoker's novel is that each character in that group hunting Dracula has a different skill to bring to the table. Yeah, and they all hunt Dracula down. And they all hunt him down and that's how they get him. And I think that Hendrix is telling us that James Harris is only going to defeat it if the book club is all together. Um, that's such a beautiful way to read that. Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so yeah, like the kind of vampire that Hendrix writes isn't necessarily traditional. But this idea of the team needing to bring him down is. Mm. And so I think like it fits into the genre in a really interesting way because it's both unique and part of the tradition, which is kind of what you want with yeah, a genre book. Like definitely. something new but also still has like its roots in the tradition. Something that I've noticed and I've I don't read a lot of horror mm-hmm. but I do like a wee vampire book back and forward. A lot of modern ones seem to have this like research sequence in them. Yeah, which yeah, true. See, if I was writing a book, I'd be like, that's so clumsy, that's so obvious, I can't write that, like, that won't work. Yeah. But in vampire books, for some reason, it does work. And mm-hmm. I think it's maybe because, well, obviously, every myth starts, like, in writing or, like, yeah. being told in yeah. stories. But something about the vampire is just so literary. Mm-hmm. Like, the idea that you can go and research it, just, like, yeah. it adds more credibility to yeah. it. And I, as well, I would kind of argue that most of that research is, like, they end up kind of basing it in science and stuff as well. I love that she doesn't go there. She just goes straight to the novels. Mm -hmm. Like, she just goes to the fiction. She's a book club lady. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's just so good. I love it. But, yeah, I think the the book club is a very important part of their lives because they can be themselves there. They can, like, read what some people would call quite trashy books. Mm. They can, like, speculate on murders and serial killers. (laughs) And I think it gives them like a safe space to look at the world because they're in quite a small bubble of this very traditional suburban place and with their role as like the housewife. Mm -hmm. And I also think it brings up that idea of women being like the main consumers of true crime. Oh yeah, um, Which is still true today, like women do consume it more than men. Absolutely. Like we've already mentioned, like I listened to a podcast called All Killer No Filla and they speculate that it's because serial killers... They always target vulnerable people and it that tends to be women and gay men. Mm. So they want to read or watch or listen to the true stories which affect their people. Yeah. And then I also have a quote from this book which I think kind of ties into that idea. She threw the book across the room and found her copy of Helter Skelter. She turned to the back section about the trials and read about Charles Manson getting sentenced to death over and over again as if it were a bedtime story. 
She needed to reassure herself that not all men got away with it, not every time. Oh my god. (laughs) That's so acutely observed. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because it leans into that idea we talked about of like women reading true crime because it's often enacted on them. Mm -hmm. But also something which I hadn't really thought about before, but he adds that other little layer of saying, well, maybe it's because you get to see them get caught. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The true crime cases that we consume are usually ones that are closed. Yeah. um, Usually. So yeah, like as he says in the quote, it gives her comfort to know that there are men who get caught and it gives her hope that Mm. like they will be able to catch James Harris. Because at this point in the book, it seems so unlikely. Yeah. I just thought that was a really like fascinating like beat to have definitely I like I was ruffling in my book there while you were (laughs) saying that because so I'm not talking about this today but one of the books that I'm gonna quote from Life of the Party by Olivia Gatwood Mm -hmm. it's a lot to do with true crime um and she has this in the author's note that just like is exactly what you've just said um it feels important and irrelevant to tell you that I spent months before that week the week that she wrote a lot of this almost exclusively consuming true crime. Important because, yes, my fear was shaped by dozens of stories I'd read and watched that mirrored my phobia, stories that showcased how common and easy it is to murder a girl. One could argue, many did, that had I not read those stories, I would not have kept all of my windows closed in the middle of summer in an apartment without air conditioning. And then over the page a little bit, she says, I want to look beyond true crime to understand why I feel the way I do. I want to look at my own life, at the lives of women I love, women I've lost, women in my community and beyond, and begin to understand that the fear inside me is a product of simply being alive. Yeah. And so, like, that just, what you were saying just really reminded me of that idea of, like, the obsessive com- consumption. It's like you're looking for an answer yeah. to the fear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you've got something concrete to be afraid of, mm-hmm. it makes it, like, easier almost yeah and that's part of like why this book is scary because okay yeah maybe it wasn't vampires that they feared but they feared you know the unknown this like mysterious stranger and Mm -hmm. like that's what rocks up yeah yeah and also like there's kind of just a baseline fear to existence well yeah and so like (laughs) it's it's good to have monsters to look at yes that's most of my discussion for today but i do want to add that there is a big focus on prejudice and privilege in this book and I felt like I didn't really have the space to talk about it like enough but I don't want anyone who's read this book to think that I didn't find it important (laughs) so I'm just mentioning it (laughs) but essentially James Harris preys on black children and it's only when someone white is targeted that things get taken more seriously by people other than Patricia. That's such a good detail. Um, And Patricia has to accept that she has white privilege and use her privilege to help them And it's obviously a very timely story, Mm. but it doesn't feel like a plot point. It doesn't feel like he's thought, oh, I'm writing this in, I'm guessing, you know, 2018, 2019, so I better include it. Yeah, so I know I've not given it its time necessarily, but it's mostly because I think if I discuss that part of the book, it'll be too spoilery and I Mm. don't want to spoil the book for anyone. (laughs) But yeah, I did still want to mention it because it's obviously really important and it's been talked a lot about at the moment, obviously. And, like, yeah, he's not a black author, but I would argue he's using his privilege to share the story, like what we talked about earlier. Yeah, Yeah. and, like, it's almost, it's a nice full circle, like, the idea that, you know, there are some 
bad men that get caught. Like, oh, there are some people with privilege that can use their voices well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that's the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. It's just such a good title. It is, it's so good. <laughs> I will warn you, it's like, it's a really gruesome book. I left those quotes out <laughs> of this discussion, just in case anyone was a bit sensitive to that. And even she though it's, me. Yeah. <laughs> and even though it's like tense and frustrating, it's really fun. It's really heartfelt, but there's this like unique humour as well. So I'd say for anyone who likes horror but doesn't like the kind of traditional like misty mirrors and castles, mm. like this is one for you. And he has a book set in like a haunted IKEA like store, which I think sounds hilarious and I really want to read it. That um, sounds bizarre. See, I want to read that and I want to give my best friend's exorcism a go because I kind of want to see the book that came before, before that. this. Yeah, um, it sounds almost like The Craft to me. Yeah. Like 1980s, thinks are possessed. Yeah, I think so. I think it's got that kind of vibe. I've seen the book before in Waterstones and it, it looks like a VHS. Like oh, that's it, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> so yeah, that's it for this week. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing. That sounds very cool. You're welcome. What is your infatuation this week? Well, my infatuation this week... Well, this is my infatuation all the time, but <laughs> I'm going to talk about it this week. And because I'm going to talk about it so much, I don't want to disappoint the fans, but I don't have a rant. <laughs> but you can consider this one long rant about why... Because this is an underpinning tenant of my being. Friendship is romantic! <laughs> so... We all know that I am infatuated with the idea of friendship as romance. You know this. Yes. Um, because I like to treat my friendships with some dramatic flair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a lot of that is just my personality because I like to be affectionate to people. But a lot of it also is I like to consciously rebel against the narrative that we're fed that you have to have this perfect romance in your life and it's always made perfect by the underpinning friendship. And, like, that is that is true, right? Like, you should be friends with the person that you're in love with. But I think that we're really fed this as, like, the pinnacle of human experience is, like, if you find someone that you want to shag and then also you can be their best pal, mm -hmm. you've made it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. But, <laughs> but there's, like, a deeper romance for me about friendship on its own because it's just people sharing their time and affection for no, like sexual or societal gain yeah um i just think it's really pure and i really love it but i also find it interesting in a literary sense because i think that particularly not exclusively but particularly when it comes to female friendship there's something really nice about how openly you share everything mm -hmm. so like obviously like you, sh you share a lot of stories and secrets and whatever in a female friendship but you also like share your space and your body and like yeah. your stuff yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even me, who I'm not a particularly like huggy person or like mm. I don't make an effort to be physically close to people all the time, but even like trying on clothes and asking how they look on you or like the way that when you're all in a photo together that you all like crush in and things yeah. like that. And there's just so much intimacy in it. And so I'm just infatuated with that. And I thought <laughs> what I was going to do today is just share some of my favourite poems that are, to me about friendship and how romantic it can be without being a romance. Yeah, oh, I love that. Just before I do though, I want to disclaim that there are definite queer readings of the poems that I'm about to read. And I'm not trying to be like those historians that are like, oh look, they're best friends. <laughs> it's like, nah man, they're lesbians. <laughs> um, but equally, I think that 
there is enough leeway in these poems that you can apply them to friendship as well. So that's yeah. where I'm coming from. It's an from. interpretation. It's an interpretation, but also like some of these authors are queer. Let's just remember that. So the first one that I'm going to read is from a book that I talked about a few episodes ago. It's from Set Me on Fire, A Poem for Every Feeling, which is an anthology collected by Ella Risbridger. And a nice coincidence, I didn't know this when I bought the book, but it was written for and dedicated to Ella's best friend Caroline. So it fits nicely into this theme. Um, The dedication is for Caroline, who hated poetry first, which I just (laughs) think is a really good dedication. And the poem that I want to read is called Best, and it's by Laura Webb. My best friend lost her house keys and wallet buying water chestnuts in the Chinese supermarket. My best friend has a mole on her ankle. I hijacked for the eye of an elaborate biro parrot. My best friend has been to all of the Greek islands. She's been to France twice, not including Guernsey. Your best friend is retraining in accountancy, has moved to Leeds or was it Glasgow, has a cat you're quietly, fastidiously allergic to. Your best friend goes to great lengths, laddering her tights before parties, plays grade two trumpet, is scrubbing last night's red wine off the kitchen lino. Your best friend is not having a photo taken, but is not looking. My best friend is stoically fluent in Latin. Your best friend did two tango lessons, intermediate dressmaking. My best friend is cooking one of Hugh Fernley's recipes, is substituting table vinegar for wine, even as we speak. What I love about that poem (laughs) is that I think it captures one of the most romantic aspects of friendship, which is just knowing someone. Yeah. It's just knowing someone really, really well. It's essentially just a list of facts, which isn't very interesting as a concept, but that's how you talk about your friends. Yeah, and you can, like, feel the heart in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what it is, to me, is, like, you memorise someone as a form of affection. Yeah. So it made me think of how now when I hear a five seconds of summer song, (laughs) I get excited, even though I don't like them that much, because they're your current fave. Yeah. So secondhand obsessions and like anecdotes that you tell over and over and just like habits and quirks that you know about people and that people know about you is just such a nice way to on paper demonstrate. Yeah. Like a love that's not passionate, but is very much there. In her little footnote to this poem, Rose Bridger's written, My best friend and I sit on the sofa, mostly in silence, passing this poem between us like sweeties from a paper bag being completely delighted by the way that Laura Webb really, truly gets what it's like to have a best friend. My best friend's name, by the way, is Caroline, and this book is for her. Which I just think is so sweet. Yeah, it's It's just so lovely. (laughs) Another one of my favourite poets, Sabrina Benham, who I'll never ever stop talking about, has two poems in her collection, Depression and Other Magic Tricks, that are, they're set back to back, and so I like to read them that way. And the first one, I'll just read it out without further ado, is called Poem from the Moment After You Left for Chimwemwe. And the truth is I miss you already. The truth is you're still here in my heart. The truth is we never truly know if or where we will be together again. But I look forward with wide open arms to that next time when we find ourselves sharing the glow we keep instead of cavities in our teeth and joking about time how its passing is nothing more than a dream, how we are never more than a short slumber away. What I love about that one is it's the exact opposite of Mm. Best, where it's not every day, it's completely overblown, 
Yeah. It's totally romantic. <laughs> but it is about her friend. Yeah. And it's about how friendship is something that you, like, carry, mm-hmm. even when the person's not there. It, like, reminds me of all those memes that are, like, true friends can wait years and then just pick off where they left yeah, off yeah. and all that. But it, it really got me thinking about how something that's unique to a friend is that there's, like, a non-monogamy and there's, like, no commitment in the traditional sense Mm -hmm. in a friendship. And friendship can be very transient or it can be, like, everlasting and either is still seen as good. Yeah, there's not, like, a this is a socially acceptable friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, Like, the way I was thinking of it was people talk about failed relationships. Right, yeah. But they won't say a failed friendship. Yeah. Because there's, like, an implicit openness in friendship. Mm. And, like, the desire to be close is allowed to be more free. Yeah. And, like, ebb and flow. Yeah. I think now there is a wee bit more discourse about, like, friendship breakups. Oh, definitely. I think that was something that no one talked about for ages. And now that's kind of having a moment (laughs) at the moment. Because that can be just as heartbreaking as, like, a romantic breakup. Definitely. And it absolutely can and I think that's like partly why like I'm glad it's having a moment because I think like friendship has been chronically undervalued yeah by society and it can be heartbreaking when a friendship ends but I like that we just don't treat it the same and I think because there's a lot more freedom in what a friendship is allowed to look like Mm. you can have something that's a lot more authentic to what you want yeah without you know smashing norms yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she makes a lot more of the kind of fluidity of friendship in this next poem, which I think I've read to you before. It's called On Platonic Love Being a Real Thing. While drinking pear cider on E's rooftop for Kay's birthday, S asks, Do you remember your first kiss? I laugh. Yes, of course. It was during a game of Spin the Bottle. Look, he's sitting across from us at this table right now. A senses our attention, looks at me mid-bite of his hamburger, pulls it out of his mouth and opens up, showing the product of his chewing. All three of us laugh. S says, I totally get it. I think about that game of spin the bottle. How A was the only boy to come to my grade 7 birthday party. How we still played spin the bottle and all kissed whoever it landed on. I think about how E was my prom date and the first girl I kissed with tongue. How that kiss was actually a secret pact to make me promise not to tell H that he was smoking. And that same night we slept over at H's house, Kay and I shared a bed, and she took off her shirt and bra before she got in, so I did too, and it was no thing. That time S and I spent a night laughing naked. I think about each relationship sitting at the table, how we trust each other with our whole bodies, how that's love. Now, isn't that love? Oh. <laughs> I like that one. I know. I love it. I didn't do justice to it because it's a spoken word poem and you should just go and watch her reading it. But um, mm-hmm. I like it because it lets it get a little bit messy. Mm-hmm. Like, because I think you can really idealise friendship in the same way that you can idealise romance where it's like very pure and no one's ever thought about the other one in a romantic way. And like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, we're like family and we've always been like family. Mm-hmm. And like, that's fine because you do have friends like that. But I think especially with groups of friends, groups of old friends, there are always little moments where the lines have been blurred and there are like nights where you've been drunk and like maybe you thought that you have a little crush on someone and like 
or maybe someone's been injured or someone's been ill and for that reason you've had to be really physically close in a way that you maybe wouldn't have wanted yeah or like they've held your hair back or you like peed in front of each other or like whatever like friendship has like a bodily and it may say the more time that you go (laughs) on that's not always about sex and I just think it's really really interesting I think like probably more of my friends have seen more of my body than my parents have since I've been an adult. Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Which, like, is normal, but it's also yeah. just a weird thing to think. That, <laughs> yeah, like, I don't sit and think about that, but yeah, that is true. I think, taking that a step further then, Olivia Gatwood has a poem in her amazing collection, Life of the Party, which, as I was talking about earlier, it's all about, like, fear and death, but it's also really about girlhood. And it really just encapsulates how that intimacy can tread the line between platonic and romantic and sexual and it all just merges together and it's called I must have only loved her in summer I must have only loved her in the summer because what I remember are her legs bare and speckled red from the heat the sour of her armpits while she talked with her hands or how she slept on a towel in the gravel backyard sun glaring off of the oil on her shoulders or how she flipped through her mother's catalogues drawing genitals stuffed into a model's mouth or how we only wore spaghetti straps, even at night, her finger swirling the perimeter of a blood moon while we lay on the roof of the car parked on the mesa, a dozen girls' bones buried beneath, our slow-breathing bodies, years before they were discovered, or how we took naked ice baths and swapped sucks on a rocket pop that we bought with the loose change, and how, by any definition of what it means to be in love, we were that, but somehow only in June or July or August. Come September, she was gone, hibernating, waiting for the sun, her skin, her tongue lapping up the salt on my cheek. We only ever talked about our bodies and what we wanted to teach them. If we couldn't tangle our legs together, we had nothing to talk about. If we couldn't dangle ourselves in front of each other, what was the point of hanging out? If we couldn't suck a bloody bruise into each other's necks to make some boy jealous, who were we really? What else was there to do? Which, like, I just think is such a good summer poem in general yeah. it reminds me of um what's that saying it's like for some friendships are like for a reason a season or a lifetime mm. or something it reminds me of that yeah so it's important to note here that Olivia Gatwood is a member of the LGBT community and like to erase the queerness from that poem would be wrong I don't know what her relationship to that girl was but like let's just put it in context but what I find most fascinating about the poem isn't really the way that the platonic and romantic blends but like that final line what else was there to do because that for me is like one of the best things about friendship is like what else is there to do but bond Mm, yeah like what you're gonna do in your life except make pals with folk (laughs) (laughs) like this poem is a romance and because Gatwood writes so much about girls and women anyway and because she does have romantic as well as platonic relationships with them she can kind of catalyze it the way that like the roles overlap Mm -hmm. and I think she makes them intersect in a way that feels very truthful like I love that line by any definition of what it means to be in love we were because that's something that I could say about not very many people I've dated but several of my friends I think, like, you go through phases of really intense friendship with people. Yeah, definitely. And, like, by any definition of what it means to be in love, we were. And so I thought that on that note, I'd finish with a poem that isn't specifically about friendship, but it is 
about the specific feeling of living with someone. And so it reminds me of you. Oh. We're not a gay couple. (laughs) (laughs) No matter what many people might believe, (laughs) we are not. (laughs) And it's called Announcement and Next Steps by Amy Key. In the absence of anything as definitive as blood type or maths, I'm delighted to declare I found the back to the eating. Also, the mildew is banished, albeit temporarily. I want to share this news with you, a check against the inventory of living. Personalised necklaces point to living. Customizable anything suggests it's all worth it. Sometimes it's, oh, this iced finger bun. Sometimes it's, put something in the diary to look forward to. This is an elaborate mural in an ill-frequented part of the city. My diary is full and the bakery is out of buns. Indoors, there needs to be a swap from idle teasels to cacti. Some sort of permanence that works in the way I work. Water, light, a finger touch confirming my edges. I only have cats to verify I'm there. I am building up evidence. Some bodily, some constructed. On balance, perhaps I'm more a person who racks up indicators of taste as proof of living. There are condiments, playlists, preferred linens. I first got drunk on Cinzano. There was no one taking notes. I used to dream of sex in a fully upholstered room with no windows or doors. This idea of rabbit fur rugs and button velvet cushions, immaculately conceived. Always snagged on the detail of things. How even did I come to be inside, never mind out? The sex wasn't the point. What I seek is magic, like an intact lipstick mirror in an antique handbag. My own nifty crackerjack endurance. Or to discover a gulping heart within a private hedge. Or the drowsy quartz of someone's eyes long gone and to say it. I am dying to be written about in your diary, and my self-involvement extends to endless photographs of my eye makeup, which might be described as signature. FYI, I prefer a fine brush to a pen. What can be said about slush? About the corners cut when cleaning the fridge? What can be said about what is considered to be ordinary? Crucially, love is a desire to be a witness and be witnessed. How you might skate past the provisional. If the house were burning down, I would rescue all the photographs, they'll tell you, or select that option in the quiz. Now the photographs are in the air, and my increments of living too. We can still hold hands, eat noodles with the lights off, have deliberate sex. There is an obscure audience, always. My personal schmaltz, strumpet wardrobe, the lacquered soles of dancing shoes. The email I sent has the subject line, no subject. (laughs) I've definitely made Emily read that before. Yeah, um, I, re- I recognise that one. I recognise the, the back of the earring yeah, line. That's the yeah. one that reminds me particularly of our flat. <laughs> um, but also that um, like love is the desire to witness and be witnessed. Mm-hmm. That's just what friendship is to me, I think. And like yeah. I think just when you live with someone, that's even more intense. Because yeah. you just see them going about their day. Yeah. I love the little like personalised like stuff as well. I'm like drinking out of a mug that has mine and my like two of my best friends' names on it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure like we have something Yeah, we have candles with our names on them over yeah, there. Yeah. So just like I don't know, I just think it's a really sweet way to show that you just want someone to know you exist. And you just want to appreciate the existence yeah. of other people and yeah. That's I love my friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's my infatuation for this week. <laughs> oh, I loved that. <laughs> so that was just a journey through f- soppiness. <laughs> so, how's writing been going for you lately? Well, this week I thought 
Let's not talk about writing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that one. (laughs) Let's talk about studying writing. Oh. So it's obviously like coming up to like university starting back and stuff. And I think it might be a nice conversation to have for anyone who's interested in studying creative writing. And the reason I thought of this is that over the years I've actually had people in real life and online who I don't know, like Mm. contact me about studying creative writing. Yeah. I guess because it's just one of those subjects you don't really get taught in school, like... No, you don't really know how a course on creative writing is going to look. Yeah, so, like, I think people are just curious and want to know if it's worth it. So, for context, both me and Rebecca studied English and creative writing for our undergrads, and then I went and did uh, English literature for my master's, and you stayed with creative creative writing. writing. Mm -hmm. We've had this conversation between us, like, many times, and with our friends, but I thought, you know... Let's have it on air. Yeah. I think we should stick to the positives for this <laughs> chat because there are some negatives. Yeah. But I think it might be better to have that in like a separate discussion. Yeah. I guess. I think it might be a longer discussion. Yeah. Um, I think the negatives come with nuance, whereas the exa- positives exactly. are going to be pretty universal. Exactly. So yeah, what I thought we could talk about today is like what we enjoyed about creative writing, like what we got out of it, mm. like maybe why we picked it and stuff. Do you just want me to kick off? Yeah, you kick off. I'm prepared and you're not. Yeah. Creative writing... It was quite a new thing to study as an actual degree, like, mm. when I was applying. Dundee was the only place that did it as an undergrad degree in Scotland, like, when I applied, although it's, I'm guessing it's different now, I imagine. I don't know. Could be, I don't know. But I always knew I wanted to do English, and then I just kind of had this, like, gut instinct to do creative writing as well, because I'd liked writing, but I'd never been, like, taught it much yeah. before. I think I did, like, one creative writing essay in school yeah at school they really discourage it because it's hard to examine and it's hard to teach a class mm-hmm. as well yeah because um, like it's it's hard to make people want to do that exactly so yeah I think what I got most out of like that half of my degree was like a confidence and as I'm sure loads of people know creative writing is obviously subjective and I didn't always get good marks in it but the actual setup of the classes mm. like gave me so much confidence oh yeah So just to explain, in our workshops, you would get a prompt, you'd have to write something in anywhere between like 5 and 15 minutes. Yeah, 5 and 15 minutes was usually the... And then you'd go around the room and everyone would read out what they'd written. Um, And it was terrifying. So yeah, it sounds absolutely (laughs) terrifying, but like, after a couple of times, I do think you kind of get over the fear. Oh, definitely. And I think I gained something out of not fearing judgment. Mm. Because, like, everyone's in the same boat, so, like, you all know that you're reading out something that has literally just been written. Yeah. Like, there is no chance for you to edit it, like, you know it has to be improved. Everyone knows it was just, like, your raw thoughts. Yeah. And, like, that's it. And that's also so interesting because so many different responses come up then. Exactly. It's just, like, those classes were my favourite because... Not just because you get to write something, but because you get to hear everyone else's and see how they approached. Because you all get the same prompt most of the time. Sometimes you got different ones. Sometimes you got a choice. Yeah, true. Or sometimes you got assigned an individual prompt. Yeah, but most of the time it was pretty much here's your prompt, Mm -hmm. go with it. And Um, yeah, I found that I found that really like creatively enriching. Yes, exactly. It's obviously quite like a vulnerable place to be. Definitely. But I think that's where like you grow a lot. Like I remember people crying like in classes, like hugs and like all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it was like um, major group therapy. Basically. But there is like more practical things as well. Yeah. Like you learn to like 
give and take criticism and learning what your work looks like through someone else's eyes which Mm -hmm. I think is something I wouldn't have thought was necessary but it totally is but yeah as I was saying about confidence like looking back now I can see when I started sort of the English part of my degree I didn't really talk out in class that much unless I was like called upon Mm. but after doing creative writing I was quite happy to just like give my thoughts and opinions and because it was I either trusted my opinion or I just thought well this could be wrong but it doesn't matter like no one's gonna care I think you realize how little people are gonna judge you yes exactly and so I feel like the English lit side of my degree was totally propelled forwards because of that confidence that Mm. I got from the creative writing classes because I would well one I just talk more but two, like, I trusted my ideas more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh my god, do you think we would be doing this if we hadn't done creative writing? I know I was thinking that, I don't know. I don't know either, because I don't think that we would have been confident enough in our own ideas. Exactly. This Actually, my next point's kind of the same, like, I feel like I gained confidence in my writing, not just, like, the technique of writing, but, like, the ideas mm. that I had. So, like, I was being told different things from like my peers and my tutors and it took me a while <laughs> but I eventually learned to like trust my peers and myself yeah and know the worth in my writing and myself even if it wasn't reflected in the grades yeah. that I was getting it's a weird kind of backwards confidence where I felt like I wasn't being like seen as a writer in, in my grades but in my heart I knew I could do it mm. and everyone else was telling me I could do it yeah and so, like, if I didn't have the classes, I wouldn't have had the confidence to back myself, yeah. I guess. And also, like, when people... People only get really fired up when there's an injustice. And yeah. so, like, you not getting the grades <laughs> that you deserved... Yeah. I think probably fired more people to be like, no, but you do deserve them. <laughs> yeah, and, like... I mean... In the big picture, it didn't matter, those grades, like, because I, well, I didn't know I was going to get a first, so I was on track to get a first, mm-hmm. so I was like, look, if I do my English literature dissertation really well, this grade does not matter, Yeah. so that's just what I kept telling myself, and I thought, I'm just going to write whatever I want to write for the folio, mm-hmm. and who cares, I'll probably still get a first, <laughs> that was, like, literally my mindset in fourth year, and yeah, I don't think I would have had that confidence to, like think that if yeah. I hadn't had the classes even though it was that path of the degree that I wasn't getting the grades in that's kind of most of my points so I don't know what you <laughs> want to say um, well actually my my stuff that I prepared is like kind of relevant to oh, okay. I, I, was, I was talking about the course in a way as well but I'll just try and think if there's anything else before I start yeah I do like, feel like I kind of ran through the whole degree there sorry um <laughs> I know what I'll do. I'll tell people what my master's looks like. Yeah, yeah, um, cause, So I did the creative writing master's programme, which my main issue with creative writing in undergrad was that it was, because it is so subjective, it's very difficult to grade, which means that you can put a lot of time and energy in and then not get the grades to reflect it, whereas if you put the time and energy into your English literature bit, you'll get the grades to reflect it. Yeah. Which meant that I ended up, for the sake of my degree, prioritising my English lit yeah over creative writing because I knew that that's what was going to boost me and so that like I felt a little bit let down in myself because I knew that I wasn't fully exploring my creative writing course mm-hmm. which is why I wanted to do the master's yeah because that was fully creative writing yeah and I already had a degree so I didn't care about my grades <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so I did mine part-time over two years 
rather than full time in one. And I would advise anyone that's able to do that to do it that way because it just gives you twice the amount of time to grow and develop your ideas. Yeah, yeah, um, With the supervision of people who... You might not always agree with your tutors, but it's just good to have someone whose job it is to read your stuff. Yeah, definitely. And also tutors are a really great source of recommendations of things to read. Yeah. So even if you don't feel like they're getting you, if you can get them to give you a good reading list, that's valuable enough in itself to justify doing it. Mm-hmm. So our workshops are set up similarly in that we did the prompts um, with the immediate responses. We were also assigned prompts to take away each week and then work on and come back with and we'd read that out at the start of the class, which we did a bit of an undergrad. We did a wee bit of an undergrad, yeah. So that was your chance to like polish your stuff a little bit more and like I think what I gained from that is wanting to really do justice to my own stuff. Mm -hmm. So learning how to speak well, learning how to read it out well, present it. Because if if you, you can write something really, really great, but if you don't believe in it when you're presenting it then you're not going to make the rest of the people believe it either. I also think like that's something that I don't think if you've not done creative writing before I imagine you'll think well why do you have to read it out Mm -hmm. like you're writing it but a lot of writing I don't think you have to read out but it's so useful to learn that skill. Definitely. And I think it makes you a better writer because you know even simple things like knowing where to put a comma mm. you know that because of how you would say it out loud if that makes sense yeah. like all these little things kind of work together and like lengths of sentences yeah and yeah like exactly quite, to f- a really good way to know if your sentence is flowing is to actually see if it flows out of your mouth exactly even when I'm writing like English lit essays mm-hmm. I, I read them out to myself and one that's a good way to spot mistakes mm-hmm. because you'll stumble over stuff if it's wrong and two it just yeah you know the flow and you know if it's a good argument I find when you say it out loud as well and you know if it's your own voice yeah yeah. because sometimes you find yourself writing in the voices of the people you're writing about yeah that's true rather than your own voice and it won't sound right coming out of your mouth if it's not your voice so it's really really handy the other part of my masters that people would maybe be interested in is we did have a sort of English lit type class called studying writing but instead of a lot of English lit focuses on historical context, political ramifications of a piece of literature, like a lot of the ripple effects of the literature rather than the writing itself. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this was very much on the technical aspects of writing. It was absolutely fascinating. There's a lot of analysis, but it's not like it's not like you go into class and people are flinging about English language terms. Like you're not yeah. expected to know about meter and about what an adjective is and a noun is and all that stuff it's more just about how is this effect happening on the page let's break it down let's figure out how we can hack this writing so that we can do this kind of thing too yeah so like reading from a writer's point of view yeah and I think again like talking about stuff that enriched my English lit side like because we did a little bit of that in the creative writing undergrad it's Mm -hmm. just not as in detail I imagine yeah even like stuff like being able to explain how a writer makes you feel Mm. is really useful to put in an English lit essay it's something that you don't really get taught as much in English lit whereas I feel like I could bring that to the table and my tutors would look at it and be like oh interesting yeah and it's like a thing that a lot of people are scared to bring to academics because they're supposed to be quite passive yeah but the like when you're studying literature 
it's all to do with emotion. Yeah, exactly. And so you have to be able to articulate your emotions in a way that's like an academic voice. So yeah, that's really useful. But what I was going <laughs> to say about my writing this week, which kind of ties in, staying on my theme of friendship, <laughs> is I want to talk about writing buddies. Oh, yes. So I don't know if we've said this on here before. I think we might have. But Emily and I actually met because we were paired up as writing buddies. Yeah. Um, by our creative that, writing that origin tutor. story. That was our origin story. <laughs> Um, we, I sat down next to her and then the tutor went, you two, you can be buddies. <laughs> we're like, okay. Cool. And so the idea with that was for us to share our work in between classes and give each other feedback, which we did not do. No. <laughs> Ever. I think, we, I think we did it like once. We had a library session, but that was a group of us. It wasn't yeah, just Yeah, it wasn't just us because we were both far too shy to do yeah. that. <laughs> um, but that's what I was going to say because we weren't actually friends yet. Yeah. So it felt, although like we wouldn't be friends without the writing buddies. It felt very unnatural to be writing buddies when we weren't friends. Yeah, exactly. But what I wanted to kind of talk about was like throughout uni, we did both naturally gravitate towards like each other, but also other writing buddies. Mm -hmm. So for example, I send my friend Hamza almost every poem that I write. I send a lot of my prose to my friends Lyndon and Andrew and all of my essays I send to you Mm -hmm. because you're my you're my essay gal you're my essay <laughs> buddy and obviously I'm a buddy back to those people as well but I think what's really useful is obviously the the classes are set up to get to make sure you have one person but I would recommend anyone that's going to study English or creative writing to have multiple regular buddies mm-hmm. and the reasons for that are multiple because then you don't have to worry about burdening one person yep and you can get different perspectives which is really useful and regular because having someone who's familiar with your work, familiar with the growth of a project, mm-hmm. can allow the relationship to go critically deeper. Yeah. Because it takes a while to build up the trust to say your harshest criticisms. Yeah. But you want the harshest criticisms. Yeah. They'll be able to spot patterns or tendencies that would be missed by someone that was just a new reader. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good source of like support and encouragement because writing can be quite lonely. So yeah, I think my like recommendation as people are going back to uni is put time into cultivating writing relationships, mm-hmm. but let them be like any other relationship where you figure out which pieces work for you, which pieces don't, and who to go to when you need a harsh edit, and who to go to when you need a cheerleader, and figure out what you can be for people in return. If you don't like someone's writing, like you just don't like their genre or their style, mm-hmm. don't be their writing buddy. Yeah. It's simple enough as just saying like, oh, I don't think I know enough about this genre or whatever. Or like, like, I'm not, like, I don't read this genre or like, to be honest, I don't enjoy poetry or like, I don't read long form or whatever. Like, it doesn't have to be personal. Yes. But if you just don't get on with someone's style, you're not going to be in the best place to help them. Mm -hmm. And you could even like... If you know someone who is more suited, you can pass them on to that person. Exactly, because it is, you'll find really quickly that it is very, like, a little community. Yeah. So, yeah, as I say, writing can be lonely, but it doesn't need to be. And writing friendships, writing relationships can be really, like, uniquely fulfilling and uniquely quite special. Yeah. But they do feel a bit forced and a bit unnatural to begin with. Mm -hmm. You just need to persevere with them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) so that was my that's my spiel for any prospective students yeah i will just say as well if anyone has any questions about 
like studying creative writing like either for us to just email you back or we could talk about it like yeah. in the future let us know because we're so happy to talk about oh, it oh yeah a hundred percent um like, same for english lit as well i'm happy to and we both questions. did film studies too yeah we helps. both did film so <laughs> we we are a bounty of knowledge i also studied <laughs> science so that's <laughs> true i don't think anyone knows that actually um i studied physics for two years i dropped out because i'm not that smart but i can tell you what it's like <laughs> <laughs> Emily, do you have a quick fire favourite this week? I do have a quick fire favourite, but I feel like I'm not going to be very quick at um, talking about it. Okay. So I feel like this is going to be a really long episode, guys. Uh, I'd apologise, but I'm actually not. I'm not sorry. That's sorry. So you've not had this for two weeks. Exactly. So... Making up for lost time. Exactly. So my quick fire favourite this week is a podcast episode. Ooh. So something I do when I really like like an author, a musician, actor, whoever, is I just search their name in the podcast app right. and I just try and find interviews with them because oh. I'm like quite a nosy person <laughs> and I like to know stuff. So I did that this week with Madeline Miller, who is the author of The Song of Achilles and Circe. And I found an episode of the Ezra Klein show with her. So it's not a podcast I've listened to before, but this episode sounded really cool. So I gave that a go and totally loved it it was so interesting you don't need to have read her books to listen to it they talk about them a wee bit but it's more about like what made her write them that they discuss like rather than the books themselves most of the episodes are actually just about greek myth in general (sighs) for anyone who doesn't know like madeline teaches greek and latin um, (gasps) and so she's like an expert in that field and so it's this really interesting conversation about like myths in a way that is very easy to understand. Oh, that's so cool that she, like, teaches classics. Yeah. She also, like, directs Shakespeare plays and stuff. So, like, she's just a boss. Like, she is amazing. That's so cool! <laughs> so I'll just list off, like, some of the highlights, mm. basically. They talk about superheroes being our modern-day, like, Greek heroes. Okay. Um, so both how comic books took inspiration from Greek mythology, but also how reboots of like for example spider-man actually follow tradition in ancient greece where they would reboot the myths and tell them from different perspectives that suited the time that they were being written in better that's so dope and so like it was quite normal to have like oh this is this writer's perspective of the odyssey this is this writer's perspective of the iliads like and so on why do I think of ancient Greece being like one year <laughs> I know. and not having like its own entire yeah. lifetimes and generations? <laughs> and yeah, one other thing they talk about is translation. And I think you'd really like this bit. So Madeline explains the importance of translators and how their job isn't just to like turn a word of ancient Greek, for mm. example, into an English word, but that they've really put so much thought into the intonation making sure the meaning is consistent like with the story and like throughout the um, story also like how some ancient greek words just don't exist in english so like you need to come up with a phrasing that explains it yes and obviously the odyssey and the iliad and like because that's the books that she's going to talk about more are epic poetry so it still has to fit the meter yeah and it has yeah it has to be in a particular rhythm yeah so so cool it's such a fascinating conversation and she talks about emily wilson who a couple years ago translated the odyssey and it's the first time it's been translated by a woman and madeline believes it's the most accessible version that's been written 
Oh, that's um, so interesting. She talks like so lovingly about it that I like really want to try it. Yeah, now. I want to read it now. So like I've read the odd excerpt over the years. Like, I've just kind of seen bits of it, but I've just found it complicated. Well, it is. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it'll still be a tough read because I don't particularly love epic poetry. It's, no, it's neither do I. It's quite, not my quite form. a slog um, for me anyway. But this sounds like a really cool version to read and I'm on like such a Greek mythology kick at the moment yeah. that I think it would be good for me to actually look at like one of the pinnacle texts. So yeah, I know I just rambled for like a long time, but it's it was just so interesting. She's so intelligent and talented and just seems like a nice person. Oh, I love um, that. I love when like the author whose books you love, yeah. then their real life voice is just Exactly, and like she she has a very soothing voice as well, so it's just really nice to listen to. I think you'd actually really like that episode. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I lived with a girl when I studied physics who was doing classics, and she I think has like twelve copies of the Odyssey, like different ones (laughs) that like people gifted to her, and it just like there there's something just so scary about it like I'm scared to try it because I know that I'll fail the first time but like that also feels right because it's the odyssey I looked up the Emily Wilson um, translation and it's like it's over 500 pages long I'm just like oh my god (laughs) but I I think I will get it eventually yeah but yeah I thought it's so interesting how like it was just kind of the done thing that you rewrote the odyssey all the time like do you know what yeah I mean? like, like you just don't that's quite alien now mm. i don't think you would do that now and also like each translation can kind of change the story a bit like you can kind of bump one thing up and one thing down and like so for example um spoiler alert i'm going to talk about the song of achilles next week but that's like a romance mm. between achilles and patroclus whereas like in some versions of the Odyssey, like that's not, it's just not really, it's not romantic. Mm. It's like, oh, they love you, like they're brothers, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Whereas others, it's so like heavily implied if yeah. it's not like explicit. So I just, I don't know, I just I think it's yeah. really interesting. I'm like, I don't speak any other languages, like I have standard grade French, that's it. <laughs> but I find translation just like every time I think about it too hard it like blows my mind because I think about how because I do poetry as well so I think really really hard about what every word comes loaded with and like finding the exact right one with the exact right sound and look on the page and like to fit a rhythm if there is a rhythm Mm. and like the idea of words that have associations and how you can build so much of that in a poem yeah and like that's in one language and then when I think about someone trying to translate that into another language and mm. successfully doing it, I just feel subhuman. Yeah. Because I think that that's a real human that can do that. <laughs> well, that's like one thing. Like he, the reason they talk about his translation mm. is he asked her. He's like, "Oh, you you teach Greek and Latin? Like, do you ever do translation?" Mm. And she's like, "Well, I've done bits of it, but no, because I'm not good at it. It's an art, and that's how like mm. when she, how she goes into talking about what it." really is that you're doing yeah and she's just like no I don't have the brain for that Mm -hmm. but there is someone who does and like they're amazing I know yeah I think it's so aspirational I think that's the (laughs) coolest thing you could do anyway so what is your quick fire favorite my quick fire favorite is a film that I watched at the weekend um for the first time that you might have seen um it's called Francis Ha no, no so it's directed by Noah Baumbach it's 2012 so not too long ago Mm -hmm. um and it's starring Greta Gerwig and she wrote the screenplay along with him yeah it's her husband now isn't it 
I think. I think, I think so. Yeah, I think they're married now. Anyway, it's basically just about this woman in New York City who doesn't have an apartment. <laughs> so she she like lives with her friend and then she lives with these other guys that she meets and it's one of these that's like kind of pretentious. It's all done in black and white, even though it was made in 2012. <laughs> but it looks really good. It's so pretty. It's gorgeous. And like it doesn't really have a story, but it's got so much heart that you don't care. Yeah. Yes. Loved it. And it's actually what got me so fired up about platonic love to begin with. Because the main relationship in the film is between Frances, Greta Gerwig, and her best friend Sophie. And they're just so, like, convincing Mm. as best friends. They're so lovable. It just, like, made my heart ache (laughs) because it is just about the the ways in which their relationship changes over the years and things like that. And it's a really upbeat and uplifting and nice film. And it's really witty. So I would recommend it during the dark times. (laughs) Um, And it has this quote, which it's not really a spoiler because, like I say, the film doesn't really have a plot, but... This is Frances talking about Sophie, and I just, oh, it gave me feelings. (laughs) She says, It's that thing when you're with someone, and you love them, and they know it, and they love you, and you know it. But it's a party, and you're both talking to other people, and you're laughing and shining, and you look across the room and catch each other's eyes, but, but it's not because you're possessive, or it's precisely sexual, but because that is your person in this life. And it's funny and sad, but only because this life will end. And it's this secret world that exists right there in public, unnoticed, that no one else knows about. It's sort of like how they say that other dimensions exist all around us, but we just don't have the ability to perceive them. That's what I want out of a relationship. Or just life, I guess. Oh, I like that. And I just think it's really, really beautiful. And yeah, I would recommend the film. It's heartwarming. It looks good. It's Greta Gerwig, who we know is an absolute queen. Yeah, so. I do need to watch it. It's one of one of those films on the, the on the list. list. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, yeah, it's been on the list, so I finally watched it. Yeah, and, yeah, I loved it, so I'd recommend. Nice. I've talked a lot this week, so I have no rants, <laughs> but. And I have, have a, I have a very quick insight for us. So, yeah, I was quite lazy this week. I basically just found our co-star horoscope for today, <laughs> which is quite funny for the last sentence. Emily, you're here to learn how to recognise the difference between a fantasy life and reality, while Rebecca needs to learn how to control their indulgence. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't a reliable narrator right now. <laughs> you think it's your purpose on earth to keep their feet on the ground, only if they ask, okay? Pull a parent trap and dress like each other today. <laughs> we are not dressed like, like each other at all. No. <laughs> I'm wearing like a Stranger Things uh, jumper and you're wearing purple tie-dye. <laughs> like, yeah, I just... I don't... I mean, it's a horoscope. I don't really believe that one, but I thought it was quite funny. It was quite funny. Do you know what one I found really funny the other day? And it wasn't our specific one, but it was a co-star one. Mm-hmm. Let me find it just on the back of that because it really made me laugh. While you're searching for that, I'll also add, um, apparently we're compatible with everything today except intellect and communication. <laughs> so that bodes well. Good, for good the day to record a podcast. <laughs> so yeah, this one just, every every co-star 
post that they put up. I always check mine and check yours. Yeah. And I'm always like, oh, it's so accurate. But this one just really is. <laughs> so this was does their best thinking while. Okay. And mine was lying in corpse pose on their yoga mat. Oh, wait, I think I saw this. And, I thought and you, yours yeah. was daydreaming and doodling in the back of a lecture hall. See, I actually didn't. I actually didn't do that. I paid attention in my lectures because I was a SWAT. Yeah, but you but were uh, just the fact that it has it has a lecture hall in it. Well, like, that's true. Yeah, I was like, yeah. she belongs there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, but yeah, you did pay attention, which I was grateful for. Yeah, I was kind of the person that everyone was like, <laughs> "Can I have your notes?" I'm like, okay. It's also because your writing was nice. Anyway, yeah, I do have I do have nice handwriting. I'll give myself that. <laughs> that's us for today no, we've got a question oh, wait. oh sorry <laughs> forgot about the question <laughs> this question is from my sister it's from ruth okay hi ruth. um and she has asked a really good question a really hard question i think oh god if you could live for a specific moment or chapter from your favorite book what would it be oh i'll i'll do mine yeah so my like honorable mention is <laughs> any party in the shadow hunter books okay <laughs> because there's just so many characters in the one place when there's a party and I love them all and I want to like be there okay but I think my actual answer is from the night circus by Erin Morgenstern and that's that I would have to go to the night circus ah there's all these tents with like magic inside so one is filled with like bottled dreams and you can go and experience them there's one that's like a cloud obstacle course <laughs> you can just like bounce among the clouds there's one that's like a garden made of ice. There's a wishing tree. There's like all this really good food. I basically would just like to go and like wander there all night. And that's not really a specific scene, but the circus like changes all the time. It's yeah. like this live and breathing thing. So I can't really pick a specific moment. You just want to go to the night circus. I just want to go to night circus. Because I feel like if you ask me, what do you want to live through? I want to go there. That's so cool. So that's my answer. I don't. I don't even know what my favorite book is. Damn, this is like a yeah, loaded I, I question. Yeah, I mean, the Night Circus isn't like it's one of my favorite books. I would yeah. say so that that's what I went with. Hang on, I'm gonna go look at my bookshelf for inspiration. Go for it. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so I think if I was gonna live through a specific moment, it would be so in her one of her books. I can't remember which one. But Eve Babbitt has three kind of autobiographical books about growing up in LA in the 70s. And whilst I would like to acknowledge that wouldn't have got on well with all the sexism, (laughs) there's this one gig that she describes where it was the first time that The Doors played in LA. And I'm not even a huge Doors fan, but the way she describes the atmosphere, and also she was like Jim Morrison's lover, so like (laughs) that adds a bit of gravitas to the whole occasion. (laughs) But just the, like, the way that she describes it and, I don't know, just I'd love to go to LA anyway. It's like on my bucket list and I love the idea of a scene happening and like being there at the advent of a scene mm. happening. And that one gig when I read it, I was like, I want to be there. I want to be there right now. Yeah. Um, so it's either, I think it's either in Slow Days Fast Company or I Used to Be Charming. But I'd recommend both. And that's where I'd go. I love how you went for something real and I just went for like the most fantasy <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> I'm just like, I was born in the wrong generation. <laughs> uh. Yeah. 
but yeah i love that that sounds good it does sound good cool thank you ruth that was a good that's a hard question it was a hard question she told me a while ago as well and i've been thinking about it for ages (laughs) (laughs) that's us if you have any comments questions concerns email us at infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com and all the stuff we talk about will be linked in the description as always follow Um, us on social media i'm the one that's in charge of it so it's a bit shit right now but (laughs) as soon as my dissertation gets handed in it's gonna be amazing it's all right i'm trying to be more i will you Mm -hmm. kind of do the instagram i kind of do the twitter so we'll 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 make it worth your fault a bit (laughs) yeah two weeks again till the next one yeah but that might we'll kind of see we'll see how we go but that might be the last time we have a two week yeah after that we'll try and go back to week but yeah as we said we'll let you know when that goes back to normal and yeah i think that's it cool love you bye bye